And we are in Genesis chapter 10, after the flood. Take your Bible, open to the first book of your Bible, the book of Genesis, and let's pray one more time. Genesis chapter 10. Father, we are grateful to be together tonight, and we are grateful to be able to look into your inspired word, profitable for every area of our life. Um, All that we need that pertains to life and godliness is found in you and breathed out through your word and would you breathe it into us tonight? We wanna, we're hungry to know you better, Lord. We're hungry to be more equipped. We're hungry to be those who grow in godliness, Father. And we're hungry to know your plan for the nations and the hope for the nations that you make so clear in the scriptures. And so as we go back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, the origin, the source, these first 11 chapters lay the framework for understanding not only the Bible, but the world And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us tonight. I pray that you would uh, add and take away from what I've put on paper and speak to your people, Lord. We want to have ears to hear what you say tonight. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. After the flood, Genesis chapter 10. So remember the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginnings or origin. If you want to understand the Bible and you want to understand kind of the trajectory of the world, you need to understand the first 11 chapters, especially of the book of Genesis. In fact, I would tell you that Genesis 10 kind of lays the groundwork for understanding the conflict of the ages. And the conflict of the ages has really been uh, uh, worked out in heavenly places. And it's in the fall of Lucifer. And it's in the announcement, the early announcement in Genesis 3 of a coming redeemer. And that redeemer coming through the line of Shem and coming through the line of Eber and then coming through the line ultimately of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His uh, prophesied coming explains a lot of what's taken place through the ages. And on Thursday mornings, in fact, we're going to look at Revelation 12, 13, and 14 in our men's Bible study. And I'm going to talk to the guys about the conflict of the ages. And we have kind of a pause in Revelation 12, 13, and 14 in the book of Revelation where it looks back on this uh, ongoing conflict. And what it focuses on is the dragon, the serpent of old Satan, and the nation of Israel. And it goes back, and and as the, the book unfolds, it goes back and it really looks at the story of why Israel has been a target of all these nations. Think about it. They've been targeted by Egypt, although they migrated there, and then they went into Egyptian slavery, Assyria, Babylon, the Medo Persian Empire. Um, remnants of the Greek empire attacked them, Rome, the Ottoman Empire, and in our most recent history, Nazi Germany. And now, uh, Nazi Germany, we go back to the 1930s, and now we have all these surrounding nations with a target on Israel. And some of them publicly, even to the UN, saying that they want to push Israel into the sea. How does one explain the hatred and the turmoil and all that this people group has gone through throughout the ages. Well, if you explain it through a biblical worldview, I think you'll understand what's going on. The Messiah was announced. He would come through a specific line and Satan did not want that male child to be born. And this is pictured in Revelation 12. And so he sought to destroy this male child. This also shows up in the story of Esther when Haman tries to destroy the Jews. It shows up in the pronouncement of Herod to kill the children under two years of age. And on and on it goes. This is the story not only of the biblical record, this is the story of our world. And even today, I've said it many times, we've watched U.S. president after U.S. president try to get peace in the Middle East. How are they doing? And that's so good. And the reason is, is that there's been this conflict and this conflict involves people groups, but it also involves a spiritual realm. And that spiritual realm um, is something that we need to pay attention to. Now in Genesis chapter 10, um, this, is, this is my Bible. <laughs> so here's what's happened. Genesis chapter 10 apparently is somewhere else. <laughs> But I have it right here. So anyway, let's go through it. <laughs> uh, okay. Now these, Genesis 10, 1, are the records of the generations of Shem, 
Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah and sons, uh, and sons were born to them. Here's the title tonight, After the Flood. And we go back to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 tells the story of the disembarkment from the ark and uh, Noah tipping back one too many. You guys remember that story? So he gets drunk and um, he's uncovered in his tent and a son goes in there. Look at Genesis 9 verse 20. Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, 921, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, what Ham should have done is just covered his dad. And when we looked at Genesis chapter 9, I told you there was a principle that as Christians, we're supposed to cover each other's faults. Love covers how many? A multitude of sins. Not just personality quirks, not just shortcomings, but actual sins. And yes, sin needs to be dealt with. And yes, we need to lovingly reprove, but he didn't cover his dad. And so Genesis 9.26 says, he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, the two older brothers, Shem and Japheth, covered his nakedness and let Canaan be his his servant. Now here's a pronouncement after what happens. May God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So all of a sudden now there is some prophecy given by Noah. He says, may he enlarge Japheth. Some Hebrew scholars believe the idea there is let him experience the beauty um, in the tents of Shem. Japheth, you're going to note as we go through the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, is the progenitor of the Greek race. So Japheth gets a blessing, uh, beauty, enlargement. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now Shem is the line of Israel. You've heard of the Semite people. Just think Shemite and you've got it. This is the Semitic peoples. And so Shem is the progenitor or father of the Semites or the Semitic peoples. And Japheth is told that he uh, is going to be enlarged and he can dwell in the tent of Shem And then it says, let Canaan be his servant. Now, Canaan is the land that the children of Israel eventually go into, and that's called what? The promised land. And there they are supposed to basically destroy or boot out people groups that are there. And Canaan will become Shem's servant, if you will, because the land will be promised to the uh, children of Israel. Now, I was... uh, listening to a message and talking with a friend earlier. And in, in, in the Hebrew literature outside the Bible, there's a story told of um, Alexander the Great. He was called Alexander of Macedon, and he was basically dominating the world. And he had arrived in Israel, and Israel heard that he had given approval basically to destroy um, that area. And the high priest, this is how the story goes, and it comes out of the Jewish Talmud, The high priest put on the priestly garments and went out to meet Alexander the Great and uh, basically to beg him not to destroy uh, Jerusalem. So they came out with torches and there was members of the Sanhedrin and the high priest and he went and he was approaching Philip and Philip, the story goes that he was on a big white horse or on his chariot and he saw the Jewish leadership coming and he goes, who are these people? And they said, those are Jews coming to you. And so all of a sudden, Alexander got down from his chariot or his, his horse, and he bowed before the Jewish high priest, by the way, who was wearing the priestly garments outside the temple. And there's a whole debate as to whether or not he should have been doing that in the first place. So he goes to the Greek leader. So think about it. You have the leader of Israel, the high priest, and the leader of the Grecian empire, this dominant world figure called Alexander the Great. He gets off his horse or his chariot, and he bows before the high priest. And the Greek leaders around Alexander said, what are you doing bowing to a Jewish man? And Alexander, as the story goes, says, I've been seeing this man in my visions and apparitions in the night. He said, I've been having dreams and every time I go to conquer a land, it seems that I see this man leading us into victorious battle. Very strange. 
And so that's why I bow down to him. I believe that he's somebody sent from God, if you will, um, and somehow Alexander seemed to be at least somewhat open to that, what that message may be. So Jerusalem was saved, as the story goes, and the torches represent kind of a, a picture of the menorah. They, sp- they were supposed to be lit all night. And there was this meeting of the Greek and the Jew, and what happened was there was a unity, there was an understanding. The Bible says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Genesis chapter 10 is going to tell a story, and it's a story of the world's population migrating out into the different regions of the world, a separation or division that occurs. Israel, through the line of Shem, is supposed to be a light to those other nations to bring them back to God. But a division happens, and 150 years later, uh, Alexander dies at age 33. Some of you remember that in history. And, you know, the story goes that it was probably a drinking binge where he died, and he had conquered all the known world. And so he dies, and his generals divide up the, the territory. Nobody's like him. And then one of the, those generals eventually goes into Israel and tries to destroy the area. And that's where you have the whole Maccabean revolt that happens basically between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. And you have the celebration of the feast of Hanukkah, okay, which commemorates the victory over the Greeks or the, the, um, those who spring from the Greeks. And here's the, the, the point. At one point, there was some hope between Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, but now there's this enmity that exists. And when you fast forward into the New Testament and you see the ministry of Jesus Christ and you see the Apostle Paul begin to reach out to the Goyim or the Gentile, the non-Jew, there's a lot of opposition. Uh, but eventually what happens in the church is Jew and Gentile become what? one in Christ. And the tent of Shem expands and the Gentile and Jew are one in Christ. In fact, Galatians 3.28 says there's no longer Jew or Greek for we are all what? One in Christ. Now I'm opening this way to tell you something important that I think you all know. We live in a very divided world. I think we would long to say that the world is one. And we've had songs that have come out in the last several decades and and they've sung about the oneness of humanity, the hope that humanity would be one again. But what would bring humanity back together? Well, some would say beauty or splendor, but I would argue the only one that's gonna bring humanity back together is Jesus Christ. See, we are all one in Christ. We must come back to God through Jesus Christ. And this is the story of the generations of these three sons. And the one son exposed his father, his father's nakedness, or left it there, and even told his brothers. And by the way, some rabbis believe that when Ham um, saw this scene, he did some dastardly deed, and I won't get into the details, but somehow Noah knows that his son has dishonored him in this way. And uh, there, I'll just tell you, there are some uh, rabbinic sources that believe that there's even a castration that may have taken place. I, don't, I personally don't believe that, but that is some versions of the story. So here's what's going on now. So um, let's move into chapter 10, verse two. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai, they're the Medes, and Yavan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus. I want you to notice that in the record in Genesis chapter 10, after the flood, it's in chiastic summary. So it's in reverse order. So it's going to go in a reverse direction. So notice that the sons of Japheth are Gomer, and Magog. Now, some of you will, that will remind you of Ezekiel chapter 38, and I won't go there right now, 
But Ezekiel chapter 38, especially verses one through five, lists some of these people groups. And Gomer has connections to Germany. And Magog has connections to Russia. And Havan or Javan in verse two uh, connects to the Greek empire, Tubal. And Meshach and Tyrus all connect again to the area of Russia. The sons of Gomer, you can reference Ezekiel 38, verse 6, were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarma, uh, probably the ancestor of the Armenians or people from Turkey. The sons of Javan were Elisha. Uh, they connect him uh, possibly to the island of Cyprus off of Greece. And Tarshish, and Tarshish was Jonah's destination west. They connect Tarshish possibly to Tartessos, Spain, uh, when Jonah ran away from God. Where did God want Jonah to go? Go to the great city of what? Nineveh and preach to them. And Jonah said, oh no, I won't go. And so he, he bought a ticket. And it's interesting in the book of Jonah, it keeps saying he went down, he went down, he went down, he paid the fare and went down into the ship. And eventually he headed for Tarshish. And some people say, argue Tarshish is the British Isles. Some people say it's Spain. Some people say it's as far west as you could go, but he's trying to get away from God's call. And God created a situation, a storm. Anybody been in a storm lately? A custom fish. And uh, the prophet was swallowed up and he lost his tan in the, the belly of the great sea monster, seaweed hat going on. And he was regurgitated on the seashore. And by the way, Jesus believed the story of Jonah was literal. And he showed up and he said, Nineveh's got 40 days. 40 days and Nineveh, Nineveh will be destroyed. Um, are you running from God tonight? If you are, you might be running into a storm or you might just be swallowed up by circumstances. There's Kittim and Dodanim. You're going to have to work on all your Bible names tonight. And I'm not sure if you guys know if I'm pronouncing them correctly anyway, so I'm just going to pronounce them with authority and pretend like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The total number of nations that emerge from Noah's sons are 70, 70. Jesus sends out 70 to go and witness in Luke 10, 1. 70 weeks are pronounced over Israel in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Israel goes into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Um, that's recorded in Jeremiah, and there's references in the book of Daniel. The number 70 may be symbolic, some scholars believe, uh, it speaks of totality or completion. And here you have Japheth and you have the Indo-European nations that are coming from him. And this, uh, there's going to be 70 families in total as we go through the whole thing. Uh, here's in rapid fire. 14 are from the line of Japheth. 30 are from the line of Ham. And 26 are from the line of Shem. You can go back and get the, a copy of the message. Um, this is from... Uh, Morris. He says, even higher critics have often admitted that the 10th chapter of Genesis is a remarkably accurate historical document. Dr. William F. Albright said of this chapter, and he was not a believer in the Bible being infallible. He said, quote, it, Genesis chapter 10, stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to the distribution of peoples in genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly, astonishingly, I can say it, accurate document, close quote. And so even people who are not committed biblicists look at Genesis 10 and say this is a remarkably accurate uh, record of the peoples of the world. Now, you may have wondered, um, with all the variety within humanity, do we all come from one source? And the truth is we do. We all come from Adam and Eve. We all come from Noah, his wife, and his three sons. So you can go from Noah, 
and his family back to Adam and Eve. And eventually we all come from who? We all come from God. So this record in the book of Genesis tells us that humanity is all united. We are all one blood or one race. Acts 17 is where I'd like you to go. Acts chapter 17. And let's look at verse 26. Paul is up on Mars Hill and he is speaking to the Greeks. He's a Jew speaking to the Greeks. The famous location of Athens. And uh, this is... Verse 22, Acts 17, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus where they would discuss all kinds of uh, spiritual, religious, philosophical ideas. Acts 17, 22, he said, men of Athens, observe, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For I was, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, there's stories from the ancient world that in the Agora, in the marketplace in Greece, they had 3,000 different altars to different gods, gods and goddesses that they wanted to appease. And just in case they missed one, they had an altar to an unknown god. That was just, just in case, if there's anybody else, isn't 3,000 enough? <laughs> if there's anybody else out there, man is innately religious. Atheism is fairly rare in the history of man, but man tends to worship the wrong thing or the wrong God. The issue isn't just about worship. This is very important. It's about who you worship or what you worship. And a lot of modern idolatry is captured in the idea of the worship of self. That's the essence, by the way, of Satanism. Satanism is really not about Lucifer and worshiping him. Satanism is about self-deification. It's about the worship of self. And that's why uh, people are, gravitate to that. He says, the God who made the world 24, Acts 17, and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives uh, to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one, that one is Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined, this is very important for Genesis 10, their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. All this was God's doing. Notice verse 27. Why did he do it? That they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. There's hope for the nations. There's hope for those who dispersed abroad in Genesis chapter 10. Hope to come back to the God who gave them life. But something emerges in Genesis chapter 10 that is a distraction to mankind. It's intended to be that. And it's going to come through a man called Nimrod. Um, some of you growing up, <laughs> go back to Genesis 10, are familiar with that name because you were called it from time to time. What does it mean to be called a Nimrod? <laughs> How many of you are familiar with that? Just raise up your hand so I, I don't feel like I'm, oh, wow, this is great. It's wonderful. Well, Nimrod means rebellion. So if someone was called a Nimrod when they were growing up, that's basically the essence of the, the word is rebel. Now we're going to segue in Genesis chapter 10 in verse 6 to the sons of Ham. And Ham was the one who did that dastardly thing to his father. The sons of Ham were Cush, Genesis 10, 6. It's a, the Greek appellation of this word is Nubia or ancient Ethiopia. And Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim is the regular Hebrew word for Egypt. So one of the sons of Ham was Cush. One was Egypt, if you will, and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, and Sabta, and Rama, Septeka, and the sons of Rama, probably an African uh, Arabian tribe, were Sheba, 
that's the southwest corner of Arabia, perhaps modern Yemen, Yemen and Dedan. So you'll note that Ham has four sons listed here. Cush could also be Kish. Mitzrayim, which is Egypt. Put, which uh, is Libya often in the Bible. And Canaan. And they settled primarily in Northeast Africa and Egypt. So the other mentions are uh, Havilah, Sabta, and Sabdeka, and one other. And they're all located in the area of modern Arabia. Now, Cush became the father of Nimrod. Now, here's this infamous fellow, and the, the text kind of slows down to focus on Nimrod. And he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. The Hebrew can suggest arrogance before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, uh, Babel is the famous root for Babylon. Babel will take some shape in Genesis 11 with a tower of Babel. And so one possible meaning of Babel, if you look it up in a a lexicon, is confusion. Because it was at the tower of Babel that God did what? He confused the languages. We're told in Genesis 11 that the world had one language at that time. And God confused the languages. And he did that for a very specific purpose because of what the Tower of Babel represented. The Tower of Babel represented rebellion, much like the mover and shaker behind the tower. In fact, there are uh, historians and archaeologists that tie the tower or the ziggurat, may have been something like a pyramid, all the way back to the uh, beginning of the horoscope and the signs of the zodiac. And in fact, you could go on some fanatical websites, and I would call them extreme, where they believe even the Tower of Babel was some sort of portal for demonic activity. Now, it may have had some demonic activity, but I think some ideas of the Tower of Babel go too far. But what it did represent was some sort of... um, Attempt by man to reach up to God. In Christianity, God reaches down to man, but Babel or rebellion is man saying, I can reach up to God or I can do it without God. It's man bringing confusion, if you will, to life. Uh, World religions which dominate the world, isms, cults. um, Remember, I told you even today, a small percentage of the world is atheist. The devil works through these things. Think about ancient Israel. Think about people that you know along life's journey. Most of them are not deceived in not believing that there's some supreme being. Most of them are deceived in the area of knowing what to believe and why to believe it. And so this was apparently the work of Nimrod. Now, if you go, you can go on Wikipedia and you can go on a bunch of different websites and you can learn more about the infamous uh, man named Nimrod. Now, Nimrod, because he comes from the line of Ham and specifically Canaan and the curse, there's an idea here that maybe when he was being born, the family said, we're not going to be a servant to Shem and Japheth. We're not going to live in that prophecy. So maybe this kid was named and trained to to bring a rebellion against God. To say, no, we're not going to settle for, you know, letting Shem and Japheth have the upper hand. And so the beginning of his kingdom was, verse 10, Babel. Now, if you uh, have studied this subject before, you know that Babylon runs all through the Bible, and it even runs all the way through the book of Revelation. It takes us through Revelation. It's mentioned in Revelation 14, 8, 17, 5, 18, 2, 10, and 21. And Babel, or Babylon, in the book of Revelation, represents the world in what? Rebellion against God. And people have tried to pin the tail on Babylon. Some people have said, Babylon is the United States. I hope not. (laughs) I sure hope not. But Babylon has sold her wares, spread her immorality everywhere. And that's why some people think that's the case. But we also know the United States has done a lot of great things around the world, including helping many nations, including sending missionaries out everywhere. So we have to be careful. 
There are some people who tie it all the way back to ancient Babylon or the, that actual geographic location. But Babylon in its symbolic form is in rebellion to God. It's a, it's, it could be a religious system and even tie into a political system that meld together in rebellion against the God of the Bible. And the mover and shaker that started all of this stuff going is this man named Rebel. He was, one uh, pastor put it this way, he was a rebel with a cause. And I hope you're a rebel with a cause in the good sense, the cause of Christ. That you'd be a rebel against the culture and against the world squeezing you into its mold and you'd be a rebel for a good cause, the cause of, the cause of Christ. So his name, Nimrod, could be translated, um, we shall rebel. He was a champion hunter, Literally, one uh, writer says you could render this a champion of game hunting. Nimrod is a, pic- is a picture, a prototype of rebellion. And uh, Nimrod became a mighty, one version has tyrant in the face of Jehovah. He was a hunter in the sense that he was implacable in searching out and persuading men to obey his will. In fact, the Jerusalem Targum says, Quote, he was, a powerful, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. For he was a hunter of the sons of men. And he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it is said, this is from Jewish literature, as Nimrod the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. And so that's why you've heard many people say that Nimrod was not just a hunter of wild game, but a hunter of souls. He was on the hunt in this sense to get people to rebel against the God of the Bible, to practice idolatry, and even find solace in man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is God reaching down to man through Jesus Christ, but man is always trying to reach God or become a God, Genesis chapter 3, in fact, there are some who say Babylon means the gate of God, Babel, L-E-L is the name of God. So they translate it the gate of God. And there are others that say Babel means heaven's gate or the gate to the God or the gate to heaven. Uh, there's been people that saying about that. And there was even a heaven's gate cult. Do you guys remember this? Uh, I don't remember what decade it was now. Was it the 80s or 90s? And these guys had a, I guess he was a charismatic leader. And he claimed that a spaceship was going to appear behind, uh, was it Halley's Comet? And that they were going to, it was beam me up Scotty and they were going to go meet the mothership. And so this is sad. This happened in San Diego. They all drank poison. They put on, I think Nike tennis shoes, and they all drank poison in a mass suicide, much like Jonestown under another wacky leader. Um, These ideas float around everywhere, and they all go back to this migration and this rebellion against God. And so he founded his kingdom, uh, Genesis 10.10 was Babel, Erech, which is 100 miles southeast of Babylon, uh, the legendary home of Gilgamesh, the hero of the Babylonian flood story, Akkad, where we get the Akkadian language, and Kalne in the land of Shinar, Shinar which, by the way, uh, Kalne uh, appears to be a capital city uh, before Nineveh. From that land, look at verse 11, Genesis 10, he went forth into Assyria and he built what? Did you know that Nimrod was the one who built both Babylon and Assyria? Um, And Rehoboth, Ur, and Kala. Actually, Kala was one of the Assyrian capital cities. And resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. So Kala seems to be the capital. Then Nineveh became the capital later. So get this. There's a connection in this line to Egypt, Assyria, which was built by Nimrod, and Babylon, and Assyria invaded Israel in 722 BC. Babylon invaded Israel in 586 BC. 
And all of this rebellion comes back to this man who built these cities with a tower that spoke of reaching up to heaven's gate. The power of man in rebellion to God. It's still happening today. I hope uh, there's nobody in this room that's shaking their fist at God. But if you're trying to box God, I just have news for you. Your arms are too short. I mean, you can do this all you want. Put them off, put them off. But I think those are the times when heaven laughs. Psalm chapter two. God does laugh and he laughs when his enemies think that they can take him down. He made everything. He has so much power. It's beyond our imagination, the God of the Bible. And yet he came down in Jesus Christ to save us. Amazing love. Now, Nimrod was the ruler of ancient Babylon. And of all the stories that took place, here's one story. In defiance of God, he was the prime mover behind the Tower of Babel, a presumptuous attempt to reach to heaven. The zodiac and astrology traced their origin to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. It was uh, with Nimrod that the pervasive mother-son worship had its origin. History records the fact that Nimrod's wife, Semiramis, came to be called the Supreme One, the Priestess. Early in their religion, the legend developed that she was impregnated by a sunbeam and birthed a son named Tammuz, clearly an attempt at a counterfeit virgin birth. One day, while out hunting, he was killed by a wild boar and died. Semiramis was so upset that she wept and cried and would not eat for 40 days. At the end of those 40 days, Tammuz allegedly, according to the legend, rose from the dead, an attempt at a false resurrection. And then there are people who say the 40-day period of mourning may have contributed to the period of Lent that is now practiced in Catholicism, and it is self-denial and mourning, and I'll let you make up your own mind on that. And then it came out in mother-son worship throughout the world. In fact, Semiramis came to be called the queen of heaven, Jeremiah 7, 18, and 44, 15 through 30. This type of worship spread across the civilized world. From this came the mother-son religion. In Assyria, her name is Ishtar, and her son is Bacchus. In Egypt, she's known as Isis, and her son is Osiris. In India, she's Isi, and her son is Iswara. In Asia, it's Sibel, and her son is Dios. In Greece, it's Aphrodite, and her son is Eros. And in Rome, Venus, and her son is Cupid. Cupid has a bow, but he's not trying to shoot you so that you'll fall in love. Sorry if that ruined a picture of Valentine's Day. But he is hunting for souls. That's the connection. So in the, the world of man-made religion, a mother-son cult, a mother holding a child, was born. And I've heard people um, push this too far. And, and I will say this, that even, you know, some things that are now celebrated in Christianity, um, for example, Christmas falling on December 25th is actually the date of a pagan holiday. The pagan holiday was Saturnalia, and they worshiped the sun god from whom that sunbeam allegedly came. And they, they did things in that celebration that have some parallels to, to today's Christmas celebrations. Because Constantine, when he became a Christian, uh, they said, hey, you know, we've got this holiday. He's trying to make the kingdom Christian. So he decided to put the celebration of the birth of Christ on Saturnalia, which is December 25th, because nobody knew the day of Christ's birth. Some people say that's pagan. Other people say that was a bold evangelistic move on the part of the church because the church decided to honor the birth of Christ on a pagan holiday and transform it away from the paganism. What you do on the holiday is what matters. Now, let me just park here for a second because I know this comes up. And there are people say, well, because December 25th has pagan origins, therefore we should not celebrate Christ's birth on the 25th. And I would just say to you, I don't think so. Here's why. 
Is there evidence in the Bible that we should celebrate the birth of Christ? Well, some people say it's extra biblical. There's no evidence of the church doing this until you know the 300s AD. But I'll say this to you. I think the angels were celebrating when Christ was born, weren't they? Weren't they singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased? I think so. There was a big light show there in Bethlehem on the night he was born. Sounds like a party to me. Sounds like a celebration of a birth. And then there were kings that came from the east. And yes, it wasn't on the night that Jesus was born, but he might have just been a couple months old. But why did they travel from the east to give gifts to the king? Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We've come to worship him and present our gifts of gold, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not gold and silver. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Were they honoring the birth of the king of the Jews? Yes, that's what got Herod so upset. Is it right to honor Christ's birthday? Yes. Just don't bow down to your Christmas tree. I don't think any of you do that, do you? Oh, Christmas tree. (laughs) Now, if you do that, we need to talk. So, look, you can get different points of view on this, but here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the church took something that was dark and put light into it. Now, is there crass commercialization of Christmas? Yes. Is there crash commercialization, I can talk, of Easter? Does some of the things that happen on Easter with the painting of eggs go back to pagan tradition? Yes. Fertility rites and appeasing of these gods? Yes. They, they would celebrate uh, fertility, the changing of the seasons, the crops, the rain, But Israel did that too. Israel's feasts are all around the coming in of the harvest. But they honored the God of the Bible. And they did it on specific feast days that honored God. Here's the point. The point is, when you do something, when you celebrate something, what's the purpose behind it? Well, hopefully the purpose is to honor the God who gave you life and breath and peace. Verse 13 and Mitzrayim became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lehebim and that guy. Naphtuhim. <laughs> and then there's some other guys here, and they came from the Philistines, and that's all you really need to know. <laughs> and Canaan became the father of Sidon. That's going to be familiar to you. His firstborn and Heph. And the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Girgashite, these are all ites that. Uh, were dwelling in Canaan, and these were people groups that Israel had to deal with. The Hivite, the Akrite, the Sinite, the Termite. <laughs> doesn't say that there. Never mind. Strike that from the record. The Arvidite, uh, associated with Tyre, the Zemurite, the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. So Canaan was a very productive father, 11 names to his credit, second only to Joktan. And um, these are people, uh, for example, Sidon, the Canaan's oldest son, is well-known Phoenician city on the Mediterranean Sea, 28 miles south of Beirut. Heth is connected to the Hittites, and this is Henry Morris. There is some evidence that when the Hittite empire finally crumbled, the remnant of the people fled eastward. The cuneiform monuments record the name of the Hittites as Kete, and this may well have been modified later into Kefe as they settled again in the Far East. Archaeologists have noted a number of similarities between the Hittite and Mongoloids. Both are known, for example, to have pioneered in the art of smelting and uh, curing iron in the breeding and training of horses. These races would have had connections to the Oriental people, the American Indians who would likely have migrated into North and South America via the Bering landmass by the Bering Strait or the land bridge that was likely there. And so all these people come from these lines. You say, well, why do people look so different? Well, look around the room. How different do we all look tonight? People tend to take on different characteristics and slight changes in skin color are very minute things. And so people take on characteristics, and that's what was happening. Some of that has to do with geography. Some of that obviously has to do with DNA. And the territory of 19 of the Canaanite extended from Sidon 
as you go toward Gerar and as far as Gaza, as you go down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, which apparently are not destroyed yet, and Adma and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands and by their nations. And also to Shem. So now you get to the Semitic people, and this is the focus of the story, and we'll, we'll move pretty rapidly here. And also to Shem, or the Semites, the father of all the children of Eber. Eber is the root where we get the idea of Hebrew. And the first mention of Hebrew is in Genesis 14 when Abram is called the Hebrew. The older brother of Japheth, children were born. Shem's descendants are going to be listed in five generations here. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. Aram will be familiar to you because it's where we get the idea of the Arameans or the Syrians. The sons of Aram were Uz. Uh, that's where Job came from in Job 1.1. And Hol and Gether and Mash, which became a famous TV show. And Arpachshad became the father of Shelah. Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth was divided and his brother's names were uh, Joktan. So Peleg's name means division. And if you read on this, people will say, well, what kind of division was happening in the days of Peleg? And I think it's simply a dividing of peoples. Peoples were migrating out and they were going to different uh, areas. Some people try to make an argument for a continental drift in landmass. I don't think that that can be argued here. I think this is simply a division of people that are going out into the various regions of the earth. And Joktan became the father of Almadad and uh, Shelef and that guy and Jera and Hordoram and Uzul and Dikla and Obel and Abimiel and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab, all these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Misha as you go towards Sefer in the hill country of the east. These are, summary verse, the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages. I told you that this is in reverse order because Shem is the oldest, so you would have thought he would have gone first according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, 32, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these nations were separated on the earth, note it, after the flood. This is what happened after the flood. Now, Genesis 11 will give us more detail, but what I'd like to do is take you to Revelation 7, and we'll be done for tonight. Revelation chapter 7. Um, so division. I want to talk about division for a second. We talk about a divided country and we talk about a divided world. What brings people back together? I want to just give you an application point before we close. I have noticed, see if this rings true for you, that people tend to drift towards uh, their own personal space. In other words, I think people tend to drift towards isolationism. And this happens in marriages, it happens in families, and it happens sometimes in friendships. You have to work to keep things unified. Now, when you are unified around a set of ideals, that brings people together, and people say, well, there's a common cause. But the most beautiful thing that brings people together, us tonight is our God. We have the same Father. We have the same, fa the same Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit living in all of us. And that's what brings us together. But the world is largely divided. And the question must be asked as we look at this, and we look at the division and the rebellion and everything, is there going to be a day when the nations find their hope in Jesus Christ. I want you to look at Revelation 7, verse 9. 144,000 Jews have been sealed. And it says, after these things, Revelation 7, 9, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from, what's your Bible say? Every nation, 
all tribes and peoples and tongues or languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, Jesus. They were clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And they said, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. One of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun beat down on them nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to the springs of the water of life and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Would you bow with me, Father? In our fractured world, we can see why you brought the separation as we'll look at Genesis 11. We can see that man was going to poison himself on false religion. And so you purposely confused the languages and sent the people out. But from one man, you made every nation of men. You determined the times of their uh, existence and even the boundaries of their habitation. This tells us that you, it was in your plan that there would be a United States. It tells us that in your plan, we were supposed to live at such a time as this. For what purpose? That we might reach out to you and find you, though you're not far from each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that in the United States, we were privileged to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ could have lived a long time ago. We could have lived in another country. But you set this place apart. You knew we would be here. We would hear the gospel and find hope in our Messiah. One day the tents of Shem will enlarge and Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will, with one voice, glorify the true God, the living God. And Lord, um, there's going to be trials. It's clear from Revelation 7 that there's going to be trouble and difficulty, but one day we will be clothed in white robes and singing your praises. Our world needs that hope, Lord. You are the hope of the nations. Those who dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. Lord, let us be a light to our neighbors. Let us be a city set upon a hill. As we uh, wind down the clock to hosting the Harvest America. We pray for people to get saved that night, Lord, that afternoon. And I, I just want to pray with your head and heart bowed. If you don't know Christ, just run to him right now. Trust his death on the cross and his resurrection. Know that he's in control, that he knew you would be here tonight. He knows what you're going through. He knows when the seasons get hard and yet he is a faithful high priest. Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon your people, bless them, strengthen them. Use us all for your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.